the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. And my guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, who is the author of a new book called Are the Rich Necessary? Great Economic Arguments and How They Reflect Our Personal Values. Welcome to the show, Hunter. Thank you. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about your background before we get into this uh, new book. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what you bring to uh, writing this book. Well, I'm a Harvard graduate, and then I started a company called Cambridge Associates, which is now a global investment firm. And we began working with universities and then branched out to other nonprofits and do families as well today. Okay. Um, all right, well, let's just talk a little bit about the, um, the thesis behind this book here. Uh, I guess the, the basic question you're asking is um, uh, income inequality in both the United States and around the world. Describe, first of all, the level of income inequality in the country and, and why you think that's such a problem. Well, the, the reason I chose that topic, actually, is that I wanted to make a book that would teach people economics. And I wanted to start with a topic that would interest people. You know, the uh, I think it's a, really a shame how few people try to understand economics. Even the uh, President of the United States in his last news conference, he said, I'm not an economist, and he talked about being advised to do this and advised to do that. And I don't think economics is very difficult, and I think it's a very interesting subject. So I just wanted to try to provide people with a book that would make it clear how easy it can be and how interesting it can be. So that was sort of my lead-off topic. There are a lot of other topics in the book as well. In terms of economic inequality, if you look at the government statistics, they say that the bottom 20% of the economy, uh, the, the 20% uh, you know, income earners, they only get about 3.5% of all the income, and the top 20% get over 50%. And uh, there are various other ways to look at it. The top 1% gets 17% of all the income. The top one-tenth of 1% get 10% of the income. And what has been happening at the trends of income inequality over recent years? Has it been getting wider? Well, it's an interesting question because, the, the, again, the government statistics show it clearly getting worse since the 1970s, and the Council of Economic Advisors has talked about this. Uh, you know, every, every, has expressed what they call alarm over the widening rich-poor gap and so on. But uh, the truth is the government statistics are not reliable. There's a lot of problems with them. Uh, for one thing, there have been fewer and fewer businesses that want to be corporations, as you've noticed, of late. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, gradually more and more business income is being reported on personal tax returns you know, businesses are set up as LLCs and partnerships and so on, and that business income gets reported on personal tax returns, not on corporate tax returns, and so it flows into, uh, you know, what the government considers personal income, even though in many cases it, it never goes to an individual. It stays within the company and gets used for capital spending or whatever, saved or invested within the company. So that's one big problem with the statistics. There are a lot of other ones I could cite, but... Uh, you, I, I don't really put too much credence in the government statistics. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think all of us just feel intuitively 
that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, at least in the, in the United States. Although a counter-argument is that perhaps the poor in poor countries are getting better off, and that the problem is simply that the poor in the richer com- in the countries are paying the price for globalization and the improvement in the lot of the very poor abroad. So in a certain way, there's a certain amount of pie to be distributed, and more of the pie is going to the poor and middle class in emerging countries, and to some extent that's being taken out of the hide of the poor and the richer countries. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the pie is getting bigger, and that's the, you know, the way it's supposed to happen, so that everybody is getting richer, but it's tougher for the poor in the richer countries than it otherwise would have been. If, but on the other hand, the, the fact that the whole world economy is growing also creates jobs for the poor in the United States, so it's not a one-way street. Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of U.S. companies that would be out of business today if they couldn't outsource abroad. Mm-hmm. I won't get too far into outsourcing, though, because I think that's a separate topic and a very interesting one. But the idea is that they wouldn't be competitive if they weren't able to get the lower uh, wage rates of India or China or other places. That's, that that's right. They'd have to close up. Mm-hmm. And then there would be a lot of U.S. jobs lost. The, I mean, to, to stay on the subject of outsourcing for a moment, the, there's an underlying presumption that uh, it's important that everybody keep their jobs, and I think that's sort of a false assumption. Uh, it's certainly tragic for certain individuals when they lose their jobs. Uh, you know, maybe you're 60 years old and you lose it and you can't get another one. But none of us should want to keep the same job our whole life. If the human race never lost a job, we'd all still be wearing skins and hunting and gathering. So, you know, change is very important. And uh, outsourcing does allow the U.S. economy to change and evolve and hopefully make better jobs if it all works, uh, you know, the right way. Yes. Uh, one of the things you have that's interesting, and again, uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, uh, who's the author of a new book called Are the Rich Necessary?, uh, Hunter's written for uh, Atlantic Monthly, New York Times, all kinds of other magazines and uh, newspapers. He's uh, the co-founder of Cambridge Associates, uh, which is a global investment firm. Um, one of the things you do in the book is you take the various arguments and you have one chapter uh, answering in the affirmative and one chapter answering in the negative. So maybe we should follow that along and kind of see where, where we go on. Because you're not actually making an argument one way or the other. You're kind of saying here are the different arguments on both sides of these issues. Is that, is yeah, that the way in you many it? cases, even within the chapter, is there one argument against another? And again, the, the reason I wanted to do that is that I really see this book as an opportunity to kind of educate the average person to, uh, you know, each of us, whether a consumer, investor, or a voter, kind of needs to understand all this stuff. We, we can't say, like the president, we're not economists. So uh, this is a chance to try to lay out these issues in an interesting way, and I wanted to show both sides of it so that people could um, see uh, all arguments and make up their own mind. And so in, for example, in, for example, Chapter 4, um, on the, the basic question, are the rich necessary, uh, that is one you're saying, no, that they're not necessary. Why don't you go through some of the arguments that can be made that, that really the rich are not necessary. It's better not to have the rich around. Well, one of the simplest is what I might call the Robin Hood argument which is that if you could somehow redistribute the extra income that the rich have in the United States, there would be no poverty. Now, if you, if you redistributed that income uh, worldwide, it wouldn't make too much of a dent in the poverty level, but in the United States, at least, it would eliminate poverty altogether. So that's a kind of common-sense argument for, you know, wh- why do we want these rich people? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have them? 
Now, to some extent, maybe you can talk about some examples in the world where this has been tried, and one that comes to mind recently would be Venezuela, where Hugo Chavez has come in, taken land of rich people and tried to distribute it, redistribute it to the poor and so on. Is that a good example, or are there others where people have come in to you know, literally take the wealth of the rich and try to redistribute it? Now, that's a very good question, Jordan. Um, and I also I don't think that uh, Chavez is a good example. Uh, he, he hasn't redistributed that much of of what he's taken. I mean, that's part of the problem. Uh, even in the United with with government, you know, trying to equalize the playing field. Even in the United States, where we have higher tax brackets for the rich, the government provides greater subsidies for the rich and the well-off middle class than it does for the poor. So it's it's not really acting like Robin Hood. It's taking from the rich and it's giving a little of it to the poor. That's quite a different proposition. But have there been examples in history, particularly recent history, where somebody did come in and say the rich are not necessary? We want to take their wealth one way or the other and redistribute it to the poor. No, and it really gets to what is perhaps the central argument for why the rich are necessary in the book, which is that the one thing that's unique about the rich is that they have more money than they can spend. And that means that no matter how, how hard they try to spend it all, they have to save. They have to save, and therefore they have to invest. And that's very important for the economy, because the economy needs savings and needs good investment. And the poor obviously cannot save. The middle class can save for a while, but eventually they have to spend it on retirement or their kids' education or whatever. And then getting to your point about Chavez and so on, the government is always living beyond its means. It's never saving. Uh, if it takes more from the rich, it just keeps most of it. So that that does not provide the economy with the savings and investment that it needs. So the unique role of the rich is to save and invest. But you can kind of turn that around in the way it becomes an ethic for the rich, and sort of an interesting ethic for the rich, which is that if their social role is to save and invest, then they're not supposed to spend too much. They're not supposed to have lots of yachts and airplanes and homes. They should live more modestly and concentrate on the saving and investing for everybody else. It's kind of a 19th century ideal, you know. Maybe that, that, that's not in fact what's happening. What in fact is happening is they're they are spending it very ostentatiously well, on the yachts and the homes. Yes, and so on. yes. But but as, as I said, the, the one thing about the rich is that um, if if you make a, a million dollars a week, as you know, some of the hedge fund managers are these days, uh, no matter how ostentatious you are, no matter how much you try to outgun the next guy in terms of the size of your boat, eventually you just can't spend anymore, and you've got to save. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, so it forces them into saving. But what I'm saying is that the rich could turn this around into a, uh, an objective and say that, you know, my role is to save and invest for the economy, so I'm going to try not to be so ostentatious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, but even say they save and invest successfully, they get to keep the profits for the most part. So, it, 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 uh, well, I mean, it, for example, it, the stock market does well. The rich tend to, uh, you know, get the appreciation and so they become even richer and the gap becomes wider then yes but the, but the irony of it is that again the more they get you know they can't spend it it's, it's more than they can spend so they just have more zeros in their bank account moreover if the as often happens they invest badly and then the money goes to some other rich person who has invested better because investing is a zero-sum game so mm-hmm. the system is set up so that they save they don't really get to spend that much of it and then they better invest it well or someone else will take it away from them. I say okay. All right, we're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, uh, who's just on a new book called Are the Rich Necessary? 
our great economic arguments, and how they reflect our personal values. We'll be back after this. Line in business, Voice America Business. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, the work wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, the Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, the Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, the work wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Life can be full of risks. One thing you shouldn't take a risk with ever is your family's health insurance. If you're self-employed or an individual and you need health insurance, you need to make this free call and see how the Mega Life and Health Insurance Company can help you get it. They specialize in helping the self-employed and individuals just like you who need affordable health insurance to get it. Here's the number. Call right now. 888-459-4825. 888-459. 4825. Don't take risks with your family's health insurance. It's not worth it. If you're self-employed or an individual and you need affordable family health insurance, call now. 888-459-4825 Not available in all states. Exclusions and limitations apply. North Richland Hills, Texas. Policy series on file. Not licensed in New York. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, who's the author of a new book called Are the Rich Necessary? 
great economic arguments and how they reflect our personal values. Welcome back to the show, Heather. Thank you. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about the, the current situation where we have kind of the, the super rich. You said the top uh, one-tenth of one percent own uh, 10% of the assets in the country, the, the hedge fund managers. 10% the... of the income. And those people are just the millionaires, that is, the, the people that have a million dollars or more of income, mm-hmm. I think the, about 1.6 million and above. So that's not the super rich. The uh, the super rich are much smaller even than one-tenth of one percent. But I think that the, the phenomenon that we have today of, of the, the new rich, the uh, private equity partners, the hedge fund partners, the... You know the hedge fund partner who makes a billion dollars a year, that kind of thing. That that's an interesting question on its own, and quite apart from the rich in general. The the usual assumption that people have is that those people represent what you might call excesses of the capitalist system. That the free markets left to themselves will go to extremes, and if the government doesn't correct it, you'll have extraordinary events like that, which are unjustified and rendered the social fabric, and so on. But I have a completely different interpretation of it. I would say that the tremendous sums being made by the private equity managers and the hedge fund managers, some hedge fund managers, and so on recently, is more a function of what the government's been doing, of government policy, uh, not of the market system in any way. And in particular, the fact that the Federal Reserve has been printing so much money over the last 12 years, in my opinion, a lot more money than was necessary or desirable, which really helped to, to blow up the dot-com bubble and then the housing bubble, but also the private equity and hedge, what might be called the private equity and hedge fund bubbles. Mm-hmm. The, those people are in a position to get the new cheap money before just about anybody else. I mean, it goes to the bank, but then the bank lends it all, you know, in many cases right away to the hedge fund or to the prime brokers or lenders of the hedge fund. In any case, they're in a position to get it very early, and to make good use of it, and especially to make good use of it if the world central banks are signaling that they're going to keep things pretty steady and that they're not going to make any radical changes for a while. So it sets up what you know we, we call the carry trade and so on, and it enables those people to make extraordinary sums of money, but I think it really reflects mistakes in government policy rather than the market going to some kind of excess. So what would a better, a better way uh, for the Federal Reserve to have handled, for example, the uh, turn down the economy after 9-11, they basically opened the floodgates and got interest rates very low and put lots of money in to offset that. What, what would have been a better way to have handled that? Well, that's, see, I don't think that's exactly what happened. I think, I think it's, it's um, the way I would interpret it is more that the Federal Reserve blew up the dot-com bubble. They, you know, they printed way too much money. Corporations borrowed it to buy back their stock. Now, it's not all in the Federal Reserve's head by any means. Congress made a lot of mistakes. In the early years of the Clinton administration, uh, Congress passed a law saying that public corporations couldn't pay their CEOs more than a million dollars cash. And so, of course, that made stock options the thing. And then the, uh, the Senate wouldn't let the accounting board expense stock options, which is, you know, just the most crazy intervention in a private economy. So those, those things all contributed to the, the dot-com bubble as well, the Federal Reserve, you know, printing too much money. But in any case, th- that happened, and then when the dot-com bubble collapsed, I think that's what really took the economy down, and that's what scared the Federal Reserve much more than 9-11. 9-11 contributed to it, but, but 9-11 also provided cover for the Federal Reserve to say, oh, we've, we've got to intervene aggressively here. Mm-hmm. 
thereafter, then they went back to you know printing way too much money. Obviously, they brought the Fed funds rate down to one percent, which was even lower than the inflation rate. So, if you got a, a rate lower than the inflation rate, you're almost giving away money. It's a real emergency rate, and they kept it there, and they and they made it clear they were going to keep it there. And if you read the Federal Reserve minutes, as, as I do, you, you could see the Federal Reserve governors actually saying, "Gee, this is working. The average person is borrowing. We're getting a lot more housing activity." And my reaction was, I just don't understand this. You know, what are these guys thinking? Do, do they really want the consumer to get, uh, having gotten corporations over-indebted by 2000, do they want to get the consumer over-indebted too? Because, you know, that's the core of the economy. That's 70% of the economy. And if, if the average person gets over-indebted, that's really playing with fire. And, and so the, the fire it. is now happening, right? Exactly. So what, exactly. What, so what has changed in the last few months where we've had, a credit crunch, and uh, the Fed's not uh, supplying you know cheap money anymore. What has happened, and what do you think is going to ha- happen going forward here? Um, I don't know what's going to happen going forward. I'm, I'm afraid the Federal Reserve, and it's not just the Federal Reserve; it's uh, world central banks working together, but perhaps led by the Federal Reserve. Uh, in any case, the, the U.S. Fed has painted itself into a corner, and it's going to be very difficult to get out of this because, on the one hand, They've created such enormous sums of new debt since 2000 that if they raise interest rates very much, all of those debtors are going to really suffer, and they're afraid to do that. But on the other hand, they can't keep just pumping the economy full of more money. I mean, for one thing, it's the nature of the beast that you have to keep pumping more and more to keep growth going. Well, some would argue that the reason the dollar has been falling against foreign currencies and against oil and against gold is the amount of, of uh, dollars that are out there, and that's, they're devaluing them to a certain extent. Right. And, right. and well, that, that's right. That you can't keep doing it. Although, you know, here we are, it looks like the Federal Reserve is going to start lowering interest rates again. What, what kind of an impact uh, do you think with that? Is that another way of kind of pumping money into the economy? Well, when they were raising interest rates, things were not really getting much tighter, as, as, you've, as you've noticed, because the, uh, you know, the, the, the banks and the mortgage lenders and so on were loosening up their standards as they went along so that things didn't really get tighter even though the Fed was raising the rates. So we've, we've never had much of a tightening, and now we're going into another loosening. But it, it's just it's something you can only do for a certain amount of time. Um, you, you can actually plot the amount of economic growth you get for every $1 of new debt. And for the last 25 years, it's just been steadily going down. So it takes more and more new debt to produce a dollar of growth. And eventually, you'll get to the point where you can put on all the new debt in the world, but it won't produce any growth. And, and it'll be and darn hard to pay it back in that environment. In uh, economic history, what are some examples of that? I mean, do you get to, like, the Weimar Republic or something, where they're just pumping out dollars and they became, or, you know, marks in that case, and they became worthless? Well, that's one outcome. I mean, that, that's the way it, it can work. In, in the, the other example would be in the 1920s, where... Instead of going off into hyperinflation, it went off into a depression. But the either extreme is obviously not, not desirable, and it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to work itself out of this box they've gotten themselves into. Ideally, in my judgment, they would, you know, they would be fairly tight, but they have to be careful because of all the debt they've created. Well, also, the economy is tightening up on its own. I mean, there's many mortgage lenders that have gone under, and credit criteria are much tougher and you need that's, more of a down payment right. and all, you know the, without the fed the market's tightening up dramatically on its own here you're saying right. that the fed should be even tighter than than the market's already being 
Well, I'm saying that the, the Fed uh, can't afford to just drop the rate again dramatically. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't even drop it a little bit. I would just sort of keep it steady for a while, but I think they will probably drop it some. I mean, Wall Street's crying out for lower uh, interest rates here. Well, Wall Street cries out for it, and the politicians especially cry out for it. But the irony to me is that you know, over the last century, uh, that's been sort of a populist uh, idea, that you know, the populists all want easy money. It goes back to Williams, Jennings, Bryan, and you know, wanting silver instead of gold. That's the easy money is supposed to help the farmer, it's supposed to help the small businessman, it's supposed to help the average person. It doesn't. It helps rich people. Mm-hmm. And then we again, the last ten years have shown how it helps rich people because they have ways of using that easy money to get richer and richer, whereas the average person doesn't. The average person just has to live with the inflation and doesn't get a better deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's reverse populism. Is it because the rich are powerful? They have lobbyists and people representing their interests, whereas the average person doesn't really, as far as getting the distribution of that extra uh, wealth. Well, the irony is that that's what um, Hamilton and, and um, Je- President Jackson and those people all feared. When when Jackson um, abolished the uh, central bank of the United States, he said the trouble is that the rich people know how to play this game and they take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's turned out to be true, you're saying? I think it has been turned out to be true, absolutely. So what what are you recommending as an alternative way uh, to kind of equal out uh, the balance of power so that the rich people don't, uh, you know, in effect control the government and, and skew everything for their own favor? Well, at the moment, I can't imagine an alternative to a central bank, but uh, certainly the central bank could at least be less aggressive than it's been for the last 12 years, or less ready to sort of set off on, you know, using its own judgment. There are ways that the more the central bank can sort of let the market guide interest rates, the better. And we've had a very aggressive interest rate policy for the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we, uh, Greenspan, of course, has a new book out, and I heard him described the other day as a libertarian Republican, and that struck me as curious, because if he's a libertarian, then then why did he manage interest rates so aggressively? It sounds like you're a libertarian, in fact. Well, I certainly have a libertarian side. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that the government should should stay out of a lot of these decisions and let the market decide to some extent. You know, if the government uh, made the right decisions, I'd have no quarrel with it. But uh, it's, it's a big risk to have the government make those decisions. And, and when you look at how the Federal Reserve does make its decisions, it's not very, it's unnerving almost. I mean, you, you look at the formula that they use and the data that they get, it's all pretty flimsy. There's, there's nothing that would enable them to necessarily do it. it in order to do it, to do the best job, they would have to be able to forecast as we all know, forecasting the economy is not really possible. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, who's the author of Are the Rich Necessary? Our great Economic Arguments and How They Reflect Our Personal Values. You can find out more about the book, by the way, at AreTheRichNecessary.com. We'll be back after this. Line in business. Voice America business. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. 
Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, the work wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, the Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, the Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, the work wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line of Business Talk, Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellent and both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, uh, who is the author of a new book called Are the Rich Necessary? Great Economic Arguments and How They Reflect Our Personal Values. Welcome back to the show, Hunter. Thank you. Um, let's just talk a little bit about we, we, where you think things are going uh, economically before we get back to the book to some extent. You said that based on the amount of money uh, the Fed particularly and, and uh, others have been pouring into the economy the last 12 years or so, that this could either lead to a kind of hyperinflationary uh, Weimar Republic kind of a situation or uh, 1920s, 30s style depression. I'm not guaranteeing one way or the other, but what, what is your impression of which way things may go? Well, I'm not predicting either. I'm just saying that those are the risks. Uh, Bernanke, the new Fed chairman, of course, himself is an expert on the depression, and his personal theory is that any degree of deflation is extremely risky and can lead directly to a depression, mm-hmm. a theory that I don't entirely share, but it means that uh, his bias is completely against letting prices slip down so he he wants to have at least a minimum rate of inflation. So on on balance, he's going to err on the side of inflation, mm-hmm. and the, the risks to the system are more on the inflation side at the moment than the deflation side. If inflation gets going too far and gets to hyperinflation, then it can easily trigger deflation. But again, I'm not predicting any of these, these things. I'm simply saying the the Fed under Greenspan and, and now under Bernanke has made some errors, and they have to be very careful to try to get pulled themselves out of these eras and get us through without triggering, you know, something nasty. But what are some of the um, investment implications of what you just talked about? If you have the view that you just did, uh, do you want to be more in stocks or more in bonds or gold, or what would be a way to 
profit from what you've just talked about? Well, you have to look at each asset class and ask, you know, how is this likely to perform under conditions of inflation or under conditions of deflation and so on to be sure that you have, you're prepared for whatever eventuality might happen. You don't want to be in the position of having to forecast. I've just said that forecasting is very difficult, so you, you want to be prepared for whatever happens. Mm-hmm. You, you need some hedges on, on either side. The nice thing about the hedges is that they don't offset each other. So that if you have a deflationary problem, your inflation hedges don't do, uh, you know, don't wipe out your, the, the benefit of your deflation hedges and vice versa. So you have a net gain, even though some things are going to do better than others, that, that overall you do better than if you were all in that, one or the other right. asset. Yes, okay. Okay, uh, back to the book. Um, and again, people who want to find out more, there's a website, aretherichnecessary.com. Uh, um, you talk about the rich being uh, compatible with democracy or not. I want you to get into that a little bit. And, and I mean, some people say if, if the rich control everything, then it's really not a very democratic country. What, what is your, your view yeah, on I that? Think, I think that's a good question. The uh, democracy assumes one person, one vote. The economic system is premised on one dollar, one vote, or one euro, one vote, and so on. So that seems to be completely at odds. And how, how can you have a real democracy when the economic side of things is so so powerful? Doesn't it concentrate so much power in the hands of a few people that it really undoes the you know the idea of a democracy? Now the counterargument to that though is that that one tenth of one percent of the population in the U.S. that I mentioned that earns more than a million dollars a year again more like a million and a half that one tenth of one percent has has ten percent of the income. But on the other hand, that means that the rest, everybody else has 90% of the income. So that even though those millionaires have a lot of more votes than the other people, in aggregate, the rest of the economy has more votes than they do. Mm-hmm. If you think about who is really directing production, who is calling the shots in terms of what is produced, it's going to be the other 90% who have the 90% of the income, not, not the millionaires. So in that sense, the system is more democratic than it might appear at first. Now, this is in America where, you know, there's a pretty broad middle class. When you have countries like in South America and other places where you have an extreme elite and most people are pretty poor, what is the effect of that on democracy? The, the big question, uh, Milton Friedman used to always make this point, and I think it's correct. The big question is, if there's a big gap between rich and poor, is it a frozen situation where the rich stay rich and the poor poor? Or is there a lot of movement back and forth? Because you can't have equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. Those two are opposites. If you have equality of opportunity and it's working right, a lot of rich will be getting poor and a lot of poor will be getting rich, and that, that's a much more justifiable system. The problem in South America and so many of those other places is that it was a frozen system. And for you know the, the rules of the game were really set against the poor and so on. You know, all the specifics. It was impossible to set up your own business. You couldn't get a license. If you got a license, the government would tax you to death or regulate you to death or want bribes, you know, and so on and so forth. That's a very different situation. Now, one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, private profit uh, companies and, and entities. Are they necessary uh, or not? Maybe just briefly go through some of the arguments of why they are and are not necessary. The the one of the let's take healthcare as an example of that. Again, one one of the common assumptions is that the reason that healthcare costs are so high 
is that there's such so tremendous profits are being made by the drug companies and other people in the field. And the insurance companies, yes. The insurance companies and so on. Right. So, I mean, the, the common view is that if you could just get rid of these high profits, then, you know, profit, then prices would come down and we could all afford it more. I think that's actually a, a, a wrong view that uh, what, what the market system does is it brings down prices by, by, by using profits. And as profits draw more and more people into the business and into the industry, uh, more and more production, more and more producers, and they compete against each other, and as a result, prices fall. And also, as more and more, as the volume gets bigger and bigger, that leads to economies of scale, and that brings prices down. Even Karl Marx said that the chief characteristic of the capitalist system is its ability to bring prices down, down, down. That's what made it so alluring. That annoyed him because it made people like it. <laughs> but if, so, therefore, if, if the common perception about health care is wrong, that the problem there is too high profit. So what is the problem in health care? I think the problem in health care, again, is that a, a free market is not operating, that the government has no doubt from good intentions, you know, subsidize more and more and more health care. And in doing so, they've, they've increased the demand tremendously. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they've actually restricted the supply. That's, that's where the market is not operating properly. Now, government, I could give you lots and lots of different examples of how government restricts the supply of health care, but just to give you a quick one, um, it's impossible to get into medical school these days, and that's because there are very few medical schools in the U.S., and you can't start a new one. Mm-hmm. And the rules just don't allow it. So in, in, in just so many ways like that. So they increase the demand by creating Medicare or, or policies like that. Medicaid and, or, or prescription drug programs, and, you know, and so on. Yes. Increasing demand tremendously, they're reducing the supply. And, of course, it's just basic Econ 101 that if you increase demand or reduce supply, you'll get a huge increase in prices. And that huge increase in prices then just completely blows away the value of the subsidy. Then government scratches its head and says, uh, this isn't working, we better increase the subsidies. So would your uh, recommendation be to increase the supply then? Absolutely. That's, that's the answer. And in order to do that, you know, government's got to operate differently. And the, just to give you another example on that, you know, what does it cost to get a new drug approved? You, can, you know, usually now it costs as much as a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, that's restricting the supply tremendously. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, another example would be, Natural substances. You know, take take fish oil. Uh, the the FDA refused to agree that fish oil had therapeutic benefits, could be used in sort of like a drug, even though there were vast numbers of scientific studies that said it did. So finally, somebody said, "Okay, we will pay the cost of taking fish oil through the FDA bureaucracy." They got it approved. So now it's an FDA approved substance for therapeutic uses, but that one FDA approved vendor of it charges nine or ten times as much for its fish oil as anybody else, and Social Security can only buy that fish oil, because it's the only one that's FDA approved. So in all these ways, government keeps restricting supply. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Is this true in other countries as well? I mean, other countries don't really do it the same way, but they have a single-payer system. Well, a single-payer system, uh, of course, restricts the supply directly through rationing. Mm-hmm. So what you're recommending then is... Or, or rather, they, they restrict both demand and supply through rationing. You know? Yeah. So you're recommending increasing supply and having more free market forces in healthcare, and you think that would bring prices down then? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the only way, only way to bring prices down. 
So it's, it's an illustration of how the profit system can really work if it's allowed to work. And, and it's, a, it's a better way of bringing costs down. You also talk in the book about if the profit system causes depressions or, or not. Uh, you know, what would, what's your view on, on whether that's true or not? Well, again, I give you know lots of different uh, arguments. There's a sort of a general common sense view that people are greedy, that people get carried away, and so the market goes to excesses, and it'll lead to boom and bust, depressions, things like that. There's also another theory that businesses simply don't pay their workers enough to buy all the products that are made. That's an erroneous theory, as I explained, but it's a popular one. If businesses paid workers more, then the workers could buy more and the economy could do better and so on. What is wrong with that argument? Uh, the, the problem with that, that argument is that there's plenty of – the idea there is that there's not enough money circulating in the economy because the workers aren't paid enough. But actually, the money is circulating and flowing around. What the business doesn't pay to its worker, it invests in a plant, it invests in a computer – or it pays a dividend to a shareholder, and the shareholder then goes out and buys the groceries. Or you see, so the money is actually circulating thoroughly and without without a problem. So it, it isn't a question of uh, more going to workers would help the circulation of the economy. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a technical uh, uh, question, but but in general, I don't think that's really what causes the, the you know the boom bust cycle. I, I am more of the mind that what causes the boom bust cycle are mistakes of government policy. And in particular, where monetary policy gets uh, too loose and sets off a trigger of events that uh, don't have a happy outcome. And basically, that's where you think we are today, that we've just gone through such a period. That's right. And an unhappy outcome is coming, is what you're saying. Well, there's a a way above average risk of an unhappy outcome because of it. Yes. Very good. Okay, we'll be back after a break. Uh, This again is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, uh, whose new book is called Are the Rich Necessary?, you can find out about that at the website, arthericsnecessary.com. We'll be back. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellent in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to three-dimensional wealth with Rory Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, right here on Voice America Business. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a value-based approach to comprehensive wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. 
take your first step down the road to financial independence, listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Have you ever had a bad day and wish someone could come along and change it at the flip of a switch? Do you dream of living the life of wealth, great relationships, and the perfect job, but don't know where to start? Then tune into The Winner's Attitude with corporate trainers, motivators, authors, and hosts, Jeff and Val G. No difficult strategies or complicated keys. Jeff and Val present a powerful and effective technology to switch your operating system to create the most amazing life. It has been said that winners have simply formed the habit of doing amazing things. When know how to activate that switch and so can you the winner's attitude with jeff and val g broadcast each friday at 8 a.m pacific 11 a.m eastern on the voice america business channel the winner's attitude switch me on the bottom line in business voice america business You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. Uh, My guest this hour is Hunter Lewis, uh, who's the author of a book called Are the Rich Necessary? Uh, which has got a question mark at the end of it, and his website is arerichnecessaryquestionmark.com. Uh, dot com. Welcome back, Hunter, to the show. Thank you. Now, we talked a lot about uh, what the Federal Reserve can do and what private companies can do. You say there's a third way uh, that can really make uh, what, what's necessary in society happen much more efficiently, and that's using the, the nonprofit sector. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yes, I actually call that the fourth way. Because, you know, the first way was sort of laissez fair capitalism, the second, communism. The third, some kind of compromise between laissez-faire and state control, which people have been working on for the last 50 years without too much success and a lot of bitterness. So this is what I call the fourth way. It, it gets to the comment we had earlier about, you know, what is the social role of the rich? And I said it is to, to save and to invest, to create more or less permanent pools of savings and investment. But there is an alternative to that, which is to build up more savings and investments in the non-profit sector and also by making the nonprofit sector a lot bigger to make it a full partner with government and the private sector so that the nonprofit sector could essentially take over a lot of what government does in the social services. I personally think that the money might be better spent that way, that the charities would be more effective at solving our social problems and helping people who really need it than government has been, and that we could easily increase the size of the nonprofit sector simply by changing the tax law a little bit by providing not just a charitable deduction when you make a charitable gift to a social service agency, but a full credit. So you get a a dollar-for-dollar reduction in your income taxes if you give a dollar. Under those circumstances, I think uh, people in top tax brackets would choose to give it to charity, and we can have a much bigger nonprofit sector. And how would they allocate which charity it goes to? Or you know, There would be a big fight for those dollars. How would that work? That's right. There would be a, um, a free market, in effect, of uh, charitable giving and, and charitable activities. And what I would hope is that entrepreneurs who are excited about building up their businesses, you know, would be equally excited about building up their charities. If they had a choice between the top tax bracket dollar going to the government or to the charity, if they could give it to their own charity and if they could um, manage it and work it, so I think no, it would you, create you a would lot designate. of incentives. 
you, you would designate where your tax credit dollars go. It just didn't go into some big pool. Yes. Goes... No, no, no. The, the, they would go to whatever charity you wanted to give. Now, there would be rules, of course. The government's role is to set rules. You, you wouldn't be able to give this money to your church or synagogue or to the university you went to or something like that. It would have to be real social service work, helping those who are needy, charity to do that. But uh, subject to that, then I, the, the freer the better. So, so let's allow as much innovation as possible to take place. I mean, this sounds to some extent like the faith-based initiatives that President Bush has been proposing. And, and well, there's no there's no direct connection because there's no um, it, it, these these charities would not necessarily be connected in any way to religious organizations. Mm-hmm. They, they would be charities that rich people set up and then ran. And of course, a lot of people are very involved in their charitable giving and running their own charitable organizations. But I think this would expand that concept a great deal. And is the record that these kind of organizations do a better job of providing social services than government? Um, I, I won't. You know, it's, it's hard to sort of point to a particular study which proves conclusively and demonstrably that that's the case. But it stands to reason that they would have a better chance of doing it. Uh, government is a one-size-fits-all proposition. If you if you go out to help people, you have to set of rules that say that, uh, you know, these are the qualifications, everybody gets helped, whereas uh, private agencies and charities can actually make value judgments of their own about who needs help, who's deserving of help, how they ought to be helped, and that ought to help uh, providers get, you know, to to get uh, more, uh, to make more progress about really helping those who really need it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how have there been examples... Have there been examples of this happening in the world in the past where there have been a major uh, you know, kind of tax-exempt foundation element to kind of counter the corporate sector and the government sector? No. Uh, the United States has the biggest nonprofit sector in the world, and it's uh, still small. The, uh, the English have the next biggest, but it's even, you know, it's tiny. So this, this would be a really novel approach. But certainly our nonprofit sector is big enough that there's a lot of activity going on. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg in New York just recently announced a new program, which is principally funded by private foundations. And he said, I wanted the private foundations to fund this pilot project because if we did it in government, uh, even if, no matter whether it was successful or unsuccessful, we wouldn't be able to terminate it. There would be so many vested interests behind it. So by using private money, we're going to give it a fair test to see whether it works or not. So that's illustrative of, of the problems we're trying to do it through government. Is, is that something that the nonprofit sector uh, is very much behind? I mean, do they want a major expansion of their role? Have you gotten good response from them on this whole concept? I've talked to a lot of them about it, and you know, we've had a lot of private conversations. Uh, people in the nonprofit sector are not uh, trying to push push themselves forward. They're they're not. Uh, you know, they they will certainly go and lobby Congress when they need to. But I think the initiative would have to come from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Like where? <laughs> who, who would have an interest in doing this? Well, if I'm not trying the... to plant a seed, and we'll see see what happens to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, it's been the opposite in that there have been a lot of scandals with the nonprofit sector. I, I think of uh, United Way and other places where the top officers have been, you know, wildly overpaid, and there's been all kinds of um, scrutiny of the. Uh, tax-free status of these things, the IRS has been cracking down. If anything, there's been less in the nonprofit sector than more. Well, you know, it's a matter of perception. The number of nonprofits that have been cited for things like that is so tiny. 
compared to the nonprofits out there. There's very little regulation in the field right now, which I take to be rather a, a plus, and it's mainly because the government has very little staffing for it. Mm-hmm. And, but there's, there's really very little going on in the way of malfeasance and corruption. And compare that to government, where there's a lot more. <laughs> okay. Um, well, human beings are going to be, uh, you know, uh, are, there are going to be problems with human beings, and, and no matter what the social structure is. Yes. But I think this is a better way to go. Um, as we come to the conclusion, I just want to briefly go over the four different economic value systems you talk about. The first one being uh, reciprocalism. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, this, this is, a, again, a book about different uh, economic positions and arguments. But having gone through all those arguments and having, I think, demonstrated that there are a lot of good arguments on, on both sides of most issues, then I sort of make the general point that in the end, we decide these things based on our personal values. And I talk about different kinds of uh, value systems. And I would, I would argue, for example, that both the Republican and the Democratic Party, although they seem to be differing in many respects, really reflect a more similar set of values than it appears on the surface. The, uh, the value system that we just referred to that I call reciprocalism is, is pretty closely related to laissez-faire individualism. Mm-hmm. And all, all of these, but all these value systems, again, the main point is that they have great ideals behind them. All of them do. You know, we, we, we're so quick to sort of say uh, the other side are a bunch of evil guys. Uh, we're, 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 we're too slow to realize that on each side of these issues, there are very, some very fine ideals. There are some things that people are really trying to accomplish. They want more equality, or they want more personal responsibility, or they want a greater sense of community. And our job as citizens and voters is to sort through these good values and figure out which ones have priority and how they're going to relate to each other. A great example of that is that in the French Revolution, they talked about Equality and freedom, liberty, and and so on. But that you, when you stop and think about it, complete freedom and complete equality are opposites. You you can't have those two together. If people are totally free, they won't be equal. If they're totally equal, they can't be completely free. Mm-hmm. So we have to sort through the conflicts that arise between these ideals. And one of your other values is, is we call philanthropism, uh, which is I guess yeah, what you're talking about the, having the nonprofit sector be a major part of the economy, is that right? Right, and, and I think that, that that set of values in philanthropism could be expanded and could become institutionalized as a larger part of the economy. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you also talk about fraternalism. Is that similar to what you're talking about with the French Revolution? Uh, fraternalism, again, is, is a, a value system which places a, a great deal of emphasis on community. It's, it's not so concerned with equality but it does have a great concern for helping out the disadvantaged, maintaining a social safety net. And, and again, the, the system in the United States is broadly paternalist along the lines that I describe in the book. I think, again, both parties basically support it, where it's, the government has a very leading role in terms of running the economy, and the government is, is supposed to represent the community and be our, our leader as a community. Very good. Well, I appreciate it very much. Uh, this has been Jordan Goodman, your host on the Money Answer Show, and my guest has been Hunter Lewis. His book is called Are the Rich Necessary? Great Economic Arguments and How They Reflect Our Personal Values. You can find out more at aretherichnecessarywithaquestionmark.com. Thanks so much for being on the show, Hunter. Thank you. And we'll be back next week.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Are you self-employed or do you run a small business? Then you wear a lot of hats. You're the CEO, sales manager, benefits manager, and sometimes even the janitor. You need to know about the National Association for the Self-Employed. The NASE offers you access to affordable health insurance, dental plans, vision plans, income protection plans, and term life insurance. They even provide 